Do you want to hear what the best and most influential minds in the golf and turf industry have to say on issues affecting the world of golf? Turf grass and turf equipment? That's why I'm here. Tune in as Steven Tucker takes us on a journey with some of the nation's best minds and finds out what they think. If you were looking for excitement, you have found the right place. Welcome to the Turf Addict Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome to episode three of the Turf Addict Podcast. I'm Stephen Tucker, and I'm actually here with a good friend of mine, Nick Stoyer, um, past uh, employee and, and good friend that, that moved up uh, into our hotel side of the business now. And so I thought it would be good uh, on this podcast uh, after doing quite a few uh, consulting trips this last few months and, and to talk a lot about leadership and you know, I felt, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to talk about leadership and the different types of jobs there are out there and how do you get ready for the next job and those types of things, uh, who would I want to bring on to, to do that with, um, I thought of Nick. So, um, Nick, welcome and, uh, good to have you. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, that was probably the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Stephen Tucker. I know that doesn't exactly, uh, fall in line with your personality. So we'll write it down because it doesn't happen often. All right. Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, you get what you pay for, so hope the, uh, you're not expecting too much from this advice, but it, it's going to be a good time, so I look forward to talking with you. No, looking forward to it. Um, so, Nick, let's go ahead and get started because you know, as well as I do, I can get long-winded in these, and, and uh, we can go down a 20-minute road in, in one topic. Uh, just Let's start out just, you know, obviously to the golf business. Um, you spent some time with us, but, you know, most in the golf industry probably don't know who you are. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you went from like a spray tech working with us and you, I think you were a spray tech at a lawn company as well. Um, and now you're working in the hotel. So how does that all fit together? Yeah. So I think if anything, you know, a lot of people think about the jobs that they want to have in climbing like a corporate ladder, if you will. I think my brain got a little mixed up and I just decided I wanted to collect as many ladders as I could rather than climbing them. Uh, I started teaching school uh, and was teaching high school, moved down to middle school, then bumped down to uh, uh, elementary school. And what I found is as the, the, the younger the kids got, the more I hated my life. And so I loved spending time with uh, older high schoolers, really enjoyed um, helping them kind of figure out who they are and what it is that they wanted to do career-wise as they moved into adulthood. I didn't really enjoy the parenting aspect of elementary school and having to do all of the bathroom passes and taking care of all the don't touch him and don't eat that and put it away and just all of the parenting stuff, the discipline side, not a big fan of it. Um, and while I was teaching, uh, my wife got pregnant and we were expecting our first son and I knew between teaching and I was also working in a ministry position um, at a church, I knew that the, that was not going to pay the bills for us. So I decided I need to find a job, and where else do you turn when you need a job but Craigslist? And so <laughs> opened up old Craigslist, and there was a, one of 12 lawn companies out there promising, hey, just come spray yards. You can make really good money. I was super excited about it and jumped into a job. It was a startup. There were four people, and over the course of time, it grew uh, in two years, more than doubled uh, in size and in revenue, uh, and was just really succeeding uh, here in Central Florida. And uh, the company ended up getting sold off. And uh, in the process, I was uh, a new dad. I was also helping run a church and had sort of a, 
a bit of an emotional mental breakdown, if you will. I just burned myself out. I, I literally was just burning the midnight oil, working 60, 80 hours a week. And my wife turned to me and just said, look, you can, you can be a, a boss, you can be a, a great employee, or you can be a father. And I really need a dad at home uh, and a husband to spend time with me. And so I knew I needed to kind of rethink my choices and what I was doing with my career and showed up at your doorstep over at the uh, Four Seasons as they were getting ready to uh, renovate Tranquilo Golf Club and sitting in a folding chair outside because the building was stripped down. There were wires hanging in the clubhouse. I walked up, sat down, and uh, you and our director of HR sat down, interviewed me uh, along with the superintendent, and I said, look, I really need a job that's 40 hours a week. And, you know, someplace I can just come and recover and spend time with my family. And you all called me back and said, you know what, come on in. And I appreciated the opportunity. And so that's kind of how I got into the golf industry. Well, great. So, you know, the, the one thing I remember and that really sticks out to me about that interview was, you know, we knew right away when we interviewed you that, uh, you were a little bit different than everyone else we'd interviewed. And that could be good or bad, however you want to look at it. But mm-hmm. uh, for us, it was good. I mean, the attitude was a little bit different. We saw a lot more maturity than we saw in, in some of the others that we'd interviewed. And and I think uh, even um, our director of HR said, you know, this, this guy's going to be really good. So we knew that going in. Um, but then on the first day of work, you high-centered the sprayer on number three on a bunker and uh so we were having second thoughts um at that time but uh but you worked your way through it but uh you know great times with you in the golf side of the business you know and i know how we how we how you got it over to the hotel side but maybe you want to tell a story you know how how do you go from you know spraying insecticides and fertilizers and everything out on a golf course to uh, to more leadership and training over at the hotel. Well, how's that transition work? Yeah, so that that first day, I mean, at the interview, I just had you all fooled. Uh, I don't know what I did right, but apparently I had you all fooled enough that you wanted me to come in. And the first day, I proved you right because I did. I took that sprayer out, and after you know two hours of riding around, you all let me kind of cut loose and go out onto the golf course. And as I was spraying around uh, the number three green on the collar, Drove right up on the new sod, not paying attention, and the entire sprayer filled completely to the top. Um, Slid all the way down into the bunker, and of course, halfway down, I bailed out. There's no roof, there's no doors. I was like, I'm not going down with this ship. Uh, Little did I know just how expensive that sprayer was. It's like a $40,000 machine. Y'all had just leased it. It was brand new. And so I had this long walk of shame back to the office and decided I was just going to grab my stuff and I would just kind of slither my way out to my car and that would be the end of my career with Four Seasons. And I remember um, Rusty was standing there and he, he kind of looked at me uh, as, as my boss and was kind of, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to just go home for the day. And he was like, well, where's the sprayer? I was like, is it at the bottom of number three? It's uh, over on its side. It's probably seen better days. And so we had to go, you know, ride out there and check it out and I just kind of looked at him and I thought, do I owe you $40,000? Because I do not have $40,000. Uh, and that's why I came to you to, to work. And so he turned to me and he said, you know what? This is my fault. I should have trained you a little better. You were my responsibility. So go home, get rested up. We'll see you tomorrow morning uh, at 5 a.m. 
and I kind of looked at him with a little bit of disbelief and said, I don't owe you anything right now. And he's like, nope. And I said, and you're not going to fire me in the morning because it's a long drive back into the office. And he said, nope, you just come on in. We're going we're gonna to pick it up where we left off. He said, that, this, is, this one's really on me, and I should have uh, done a better job as your leader. And at that moment, I knew that Four Seasons was going to be different for me as an employer. And so um, just the level of responsibility that he took and the fact that he put his neck out there um, really indebted me both to him and to the team. And I absolutely loved working, driving the tractors, being really uh, isolated out on the golf course. I could just kind of keep my, my thoughts to myself and really interact um, with just the guys on the team. It was, it was a great experience. But after two years, Rusty turned to me and just kind of said, hey, man, how long are you going to ride that sprayer? How long are you going to be out there you know, driving that tractor? And I kind of looked at him and thought, oh boy, what, am I not doing my job well? Like, what, where am I failing you? And he said, you know, I really feel like you need to be around people. Like, you have a gift, you really connect with people well, you lead people well, um, they respond well to you. And so he was like, you, you really need to reconsider what you're doing, because you could ride this thing your whole life, but um, you would be uh, keeping the world from really, you know, getting to see the gifts that you have and the talents you have. And so with him kind of pushing me out of the nest a little bit in my own restlessness in the position, I kind of stepped back out, went back, taught school for a few months, and our director of HR called and said, hey, we, we're going to create a position, uh, and it requires a bit of teaching credentials. Is uh, that something you'd be interested in if, you, if we asked you to come back to the hotel and help lead and train some of the team members here and, and help uh, sell the brand, if you will, um, to everyone here in Orlando? Uh, but specifically help develop the staff that we have here so that they can become better leaders um, and employees and make this an, a, an amazing place to work, if you will. Uh, that's, that's great. I think, um, you know, the biggest things, and, and, you know, we'll get further into this a little bit later, is, you know, recognizing that, listen, some people are, are meant to sit on that sprayer and ride it for year year after year and and some you know are there for a short time to to move into a assistant superintendent's role or a superintendent's position at some point and and I think uh, being able to physically see um, the talent that people have is something that's rare I think Rusty's really good at that he's be, being able to see hey you know this guy's pretty good at this but man he would be so much better if he did this or something along those lines and that's what makes it great to work with him. Now, the organizational side of Rusty Wilson is uh, a little bit different, but um, but that's why I have the organizational side. And and I think um, as we talk more about this and talk about predictive index and some tools that we use, uh, I think it'll be an important part of uh, learning about leadership and and what it means to kind of look at your employees in a little bit different different way. Um, all right, so. Let me start. Let's start off with some leadership. And you know, would you would you agree that most people uh, that begin leadership roles have never been taught how to lead? Um, this is kind of a trick, not necessarily a trick question, but I know the answer to it. And and uh, the more I I see people uh, in not only the golf industry but other industries as well that are great workers and they get put into some of these positions and they were great workers, but they were never taught how to lead or, or, you know, how to step back and not 
hover over somebody and, and let them do the job now since since they've been put into a leadership role. Um, I think that we lose that sometimes and it takes years to figure that out. And so I wanted to kind of start with this question because I think it's, it's a great one that, you know, you see a lot of people that are out there and they're very good at what they do. But when they when you start looking at being able to manage the people, uh, they seem to struggle. Do you see that same thing now? You spend a lot more time at the hotel and and with candidates and, and all those types of things. What what do you notice? Yeah, for sure. If you think about leadership as a hospitality employee from a hospitality perspective, we work with a lot of really young people. They're just out of college. Uh, they have their whole career ahead of them. And the first thing they want to do is how quickly can I get into a supervisor position? How quickly can I get into a managerial position? And for a lot of teams, for a lot of organizations, the first thing they think about is if this managerial position is open, if this leadership position is open, who are we going to fill it with? We're going to fill it with the person who is the highest performer. And so who gets the job done the fastest? Who's the most effective? Who brings in the most revenue? Let's just put them into that leadership position. And the one thing you really want to identify is that leadership is a totally different skill set than simply being a high performer. Uh, it is. It requires a different personality. It requires a different approach. It requires different um, traits, if you will. And so we want to make sure that we capitalize uh, on people's giftedness and their natural fit in a role, not necessarily on the fact that they're just a high performer. Um, I can think of one individual who he was an amazing um, leader in his team. He was. He was great at. Um, serving on the floor. He was really great at connecting with guests and his team loved him, was very supportive of him. And when he stepped into a leadership role, what he found was translating how he did his job to other people and helping them embrace their gifts and grow in their potential to the level that he was at was an extreme challenge for him. Uh, he could go out and he could sweet talk any guest in the world. He could he could fix any glitch, any problem that came up, and yet he would struggle with helping train other people to do the same thing. And when you would ask him, well, how is it that you do that? He would say, well, I don't know. It just it comes naturally to me, which is great. But if you're going to put someone into a leadership position, they have to be able to transmit that information into others. They have to be able to figure out how do I develop the people who are around me so that I can bring out their giftedness and their potential, not just continue to be a rock star performer in that position. Um, there's a great saying by a guy named Dave Ramsey. He said, you know what, leaders, um, leaders are not born. You never go to a hospital and out pops the baby and, you know, the doctor turns and says, well, this one's a boy and this one's a girl and this one's a leader. You know, it doesn't happen. Um, leaders are trained. They are developed. And when we turn to someone and just give them the keys and say, congratulations, the department's yours, the team is yours, without properly preparing them to be a leader, we're setting them up for failure. We're setting them up um, to really uh, go through some hardships that we could avoid if we just began to look for opportunities to instill in them before the role uh, so that when they were able to step into it, they realized the importance of communication. They realized the importance of accountability and delegation and a lot of these skill sets that leaders need that an, that an employee or a line staff member may not need. I agree, Nick. I think, you know, one of the questions, though, I mean, we talk about leadership, you know, what makes someone a good leader, you think? I think it's going to start with the approach that they take to others. 
You know, within four seasons, we really stress the golden rule. And we stress that not because we just want everybody to get along and not just because it's something that's universally uh, understood or embraced, but it is a leadership philosophy. If you are a leader, I love Simon Sinek. I love the, the books that he's authored. I agree. Um, one of his books, Leaders Eat Last, is phenomenal. And uh, in that, when he, even through the title, you, you hear Leaders Eat Last. He's talking about in the military, you know, um, all of these different commanders, lieutenants, uh, all of the leaders get to the back of the line to make sure everyone else eats first when they go into the mess hall. The same thing is true for us. If we're going to be a great leader, if you look at the great leaders that we've seen throughout history, many of them serve in order to lead. And so if you're going to be a great leader, it's got to start with being a servant leader. And so in order to see that, you really have to start with people's values. You have to start with where their heart is and their approach to others. If Leadership for them is a title. If leadership for them is a position, it's more money, it's more responsibility, it's an opportunity for fame, it's an opportunity to prove themselves, uh, then in the long run, that operation, that leader and that team is going to go down in flames. And so how can we uh, identify the people on teams who are going to be great leaders? We look at how the people on our teams currently serve each other. Yeah, and I, I think you can you can tell. I mean, if you go into, in our case, any department or um, in a golf course sense, um, you go to a golf course and you can tell that the employees love being there. That, you know, I've seen golf courses that had eight or ten employees and they worked their tails off because, um, not because they, they had to, because they wanted to. And I think, you know, if you put yourself into an employee's uh, mindset, and I do this a lot, whether it's giving a review to someone or whatever the case may be, I, I try to sit back and put myself in their shoes before I do it so that I know, okay, if I want this guy to perform better in a specific way, how would I want to receive that if I were this person? And I try to tailor my review to meet that need so that in the end, I get not only what we're looking for to out of this employee, but also that the employee gets something out of the review. You know, otherwise, oh no, everything's great. You're doing a good job. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you don't learn anything from that. And so I've tried to always make it a point that, you know, I want the guys to be able to grow. What's their next step? What do I need to learn? You know, if you're going to sit in this seat, what are those things that, that you need to know how to do? And so I think when you when you go and you visit other departments or, or other golf courses and you see those guys that just love what they do and they love being there, you know, that starts, you know, from a good from having a great leader. Because if they hated their job, you'd be able to see it. And and I think that's a big thing for me when I go in and I look at a place and everybody's joking around and having fun and and nobody's just like serious and worried about what they're gonna say. You know, if I ask them a question, hey, you know, do you grind reels or do you backlap reels? And I get this look like, oh, should I answer this? You know, and they're scared to answer it. You know, it, 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 I think when you can walk in there and say, well, this is what we do and this is how we do it. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong, but, you know, this is how we do our things. I think, you know, that, that kind of stems from not being fearful of doing the, doing the position, but, but understanding that, hey, I'm not doing everything perfect and being okay with saying that. You know, a lot of golf courses, they, you know, guys don't want to say what they don't know. They just want to do their job, and then hopefully I know everything I'm doing, and I don't get caught up in something I don't know, because uh, I don't want to. I don't want to voice that. And I think when you're in the right position, or you're in the right with the right leader, 
you want to tell them the things that you're lacking because you know that they're going to help you get better at it. And, and that's, I guess that's the way I kind of view it is, you know, I want to create an atmosphere at our facility where guys want to come talk to me because they're, they're not strong in an area or they're weak in a certain thing, not because they're fearful that I'm not going to, oh man, if he looks at this, he's going to, he, you know, he's going to come and say something about it. I want them to want to do it the right way and want to get better and want to get into that next seat. Yeah, and that's really going to come from the position of the person who's your leader. And so if you have a leader who is supportive, you have a leader who's going to back you, you have a leader who has told you and taught you and the people on your team that here's the mission that we're on. This is the goal that we're trying to achieve, and we're all going to get there together. Uh, If that leader can really sell that vision and that mission to a team, uh, that team is going to be able to accomplish great things. I mean, think of LeBron James when he was down in Miami, right? He had some of the best players, you know, Bosh and Wade and LeBron all playing here. And yet look at what Steph Curry and at the time a bunch of no names were able to do all because they had a unified vision and mission. And so it's not about the level of talent that you have on a team and the ability to uh, gather all the best performers in the world and put them in one place, what you will see is a group, a unified team, will be able to accomplish far more than a collection of rock stars or a collection of all-stars who are all going different directions. And so if you have a leader who is supportive, you have a leader who is encouraging uh, and really wants you to uh, do more than they were ever able to do, much like a parent, right? We want to see our kids grow up to be better than us. That's why we want to provide for them and we want to give them the best of everything. If you have a leader who wants to give the best he can to his team because he wants them to exceed who he is or she is, uh, then you're going to see the results of that because those employees are going to look at their leader as someone not only that they would like to emulate, but that they're going to no longer just do the requirements of the job. They're no longer just going to live up to what they have to do in this nine to five to maintain where they're at. They're going to exceed. They're going to put their heart and soul into it because they know someone else believes in them and is telling them that they're able to do this. No, uh, I agree a hundred percent. I think, uh, I think those are those are great notes. Um, so, if you were to advise a new leader, right, um, in this industry, in the hotel industry, whatever, how to become an effective leader, what would you advise them to do? I think there's a, a few things that you want to start with. John Maxwell, in particular, he says that leadership is influence. So if you're going to identify who a leader is, look at who the influencer is, for better or for worse, on your team. The person who carries the most influence, they are the leader, whether they have the title or they don't. Once you recognize that leadership is influence, okay, I know it's influence, how do I build influence with others? You build influence with others through trust. And so the person who is the most influential is the person who has gained the most trust over time on a team. Trust is kind of like currency, and there's an old adage by Dr. Phil, and he's like, you know, trust is uh, slowly gained and and quickly lost, right? If you think back to when you were in high school, your parents may have given you a curfew, and so you stayed out at night, and maybe you were five minutes late coming back from that curfew. You get back to your house, you walk in, and there is your mother or your father looking at you, and they were like, give us the keys to the car. You're never going out again uh, until you're 22, and you're like, what What just happened? I was five minutes late. It was a red light just down the road. This was one time. I've come back on time uh, every other time you've let me leave this house. 
yet they will still take those keys from you because you have lost their trust. And in order to gain it back, it will take months for that to happen. And so when you think about influence, influence always comes through trust. And so how do you begin to establish trust on a team? You do it through connection, transparency, and consistency. Um, You need to connect with the people who are on your team. If you think about it, at least at Four Seasons, this is the way I pitch it, um, we tend to be scared of the things we don't understand. When I was a kid, I was scared of roller coasters. And I remember the fifth grade field trip, we went to Bush Gardens and they just opened Kumba, so that dates myself a little bit. But here is this roller coaster that is doing a corkscrew around a bridge and I am about to board this thing. And I was a scrawny kid with a big head and that does not bode well for those little chest units that you get on at a theme park. I thought, I'm going to fall out of this thing. I'm going to die. I will not survive this ride. And all my fifth grade buddies are like, we'll be fine. Look, everybody's coming off. Everything's great. And I'm like, I am not going on this ride. There is no way you're getting me on it. I was scared to death. And the reason I was scared is because I didn't know what to expect. I haven't been on one before. I've never gone upside down on a roller coaster. This thing's 80 miles an hour. And needless to say, a little social pressure, a little peer pressure, I end up getting on this thing. I ride it. And when we reach the end platform and the ride is over, we just kind of look at the staff members and spin our fingers and we're like, let's go again. You know, we'll get back in line and we're going to do this over and over. I think we rode it probably 14 times. And one of my buddies on the way back threw up on the way home. And I was like, yep, we rode it too much, (laughs) but we loved it. Why? Because we got over the fear and the fear that we have, whether it be of cultures, whether it be of other people, whether it be of our own abilities or talents, the fear that we have of expectations of another individual, We fear those things because we don't understand them. And so how do you come to a point of understanding? You find commonality. When I first started working at Four Seasons, I wondered what type of clientele we really catered to. I knew nothing about Four Seasons other than Kid Rock has an anthem where he sang from the top of Four Seasons, you know, Mm -hmm. and not that I listened to a lot of Kid Rock, but that was my only identifying trademark. There were no Four Seasons here in Central Florida. And so as I started working on the golf course, the first celebrity who I came across, I was like, oh, okay, so this is some of the clientele that we have here at the hotel, and this is how we interact. And I thought, what do I have in common with these people? Like, I am not, you know, creating movies. I am not writing and producing music. You know, I do not have this sort of fame and acclaim. And yet what I found was when they were out on the golf course, they just wanted to have a great round of golf. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I interacted with some of the wealthiest people in the world, you know, both on the golf course and in the hotel, And every time they came across as some of the nicest people I've ever met, they just want their families to come and have a great vacation. And what I found was we had a lot more in common than we had separating us. And whether it's culturally, socially, um, uh, professionally, we have to really think about what is it that we have in common with the people in our team, with the people in our organization, with the clients that we serve, with the customers who come and see us, because that's going to drive out fear. That commonality will drive out fear. And so when you establish commonality and connection, when you're transparent with the person who's in front of you um, and you're able to be open and honest with your team, um, you're going to see that that begins to unify the group that is there. Uh, You know, it's often said, I believe it's Andy Stanley that said that the greatest enemy to unity is suspicion. And that when you have suspicion hanging out there and people wondering, is this true? Is this not true? We're kind of giving that judgmental side eye and always wondering what's actually going on. 
secrecy and suspicion will divide a team and it is toxic to a culture. And so the more we as leaders can be transparent and open, the more we can be consistent in our behaviors and in our attitudes so that we're not hot one day and cold the next and the vision is always changing, but we are rock steady and this is where we are going. This is how we're going to get there and I'm going to hold you accountable to this because I know you can live up to this level. The more consistency, transparency, and connection we have, the more trust you're going to have. The more trust you have, the more influence you're going to have. The more influence you have, the greater you're going to be able to lead. And uh, thinking of that, I I remember hearing a a story, and you're going to hear it. You guys are going to hear a lot from uh, on Simon Sinek. Is uh, there was a story he told about an experience that he had when he went to stay at a Four Seasons, and that uh, he had an interaction with an employee there. And that an employee worked at two different places, and and um, he went and talked to the employee. He's like, "Man, this guy's a rock star. He is on it, you know." And uh, he went and asked him about it, and the guy said, "Oh, I love my job." And and he's like, "Well, what do you love about your job?" And and he says, "Well, it's you know, it doesn't matter if it's my manager or another manager around the hotel. They all care about me and my tools and the things that I need." Um, and he said, "But you know, when I work over at this other hotel." Um, you know, they're just looking for what I'm doing wrong. They're trying to find something that I'm doing wrong. And, and, uh, so you get these employees that, you know, just because they have a, a, a bad leader will perform in two different ways. You've got a guy that loves what he does every single day, performing high and making memories for people at four seasons. But then the same employee working at another hotel, um, just punching the clock and going home because no one cares about him other than trying to make sure that he's not doing something wrong. And I think, you know, that outlook is a a very important one because I think a a lot of people tend to do that. You know, they tend to look at, well, you know, what did he do now? Uh, Instead of what can we help him do? You know, he's here now. What can we do to get him better? Yeah, the uh, just being able to affirm and empower people goes a long way because when you are putting them first and you as a leader are taking a back seat and you let them grow and develop and take chances and take risks, you know, whether they fail or they succeed, they're going to grow as a person. A lot of departments and a lot of individuals, especially as leaders, they're afraid to fail because they don't want their leaders or the people above them who are watching them to see them fail. Uh, and one thing that I tell a lot of our staff members here is, look, there's no such thing as failing. Mm-hmm. You either win or you learn something. And that is true for athletes. It's true for uh, industry professionals. It doesn't matter who you are. You either win or you learn something. And I remember that story of Noah uh, because he was working over at Caesars Palace and Mm -hmm. it was the Four Seasons in Vegas. And he said he loved being at Four Seasons because his leaders affirmed and supported him. It didn't matter who it was that came by. It didn't even have to be his leader. And what that makes me think of over and over and over again is how often are we positively affirming the people who are on our team? How many times are we going back And even if they've blown up three projects that we've given to them, what's the one project they've gotten right? If you think back to your childhood, for some of us who maybe had a parent in the house as we went to school, uh, one of the things I can think back to is working really hard and trying to bring home good grades, right? And, And being like a straight A student or trying to be an honor roll student. And there are times where you come home and you show your report card and it's like, why do you have this B? And you look at it and you say, but what about all these A's? And all of a sudden in that moment, you begin to say, oh my gosh, maybe as a parent, I can look at my child and I can say, you're right. They have all of these places they've succeeded. They have this one place that they're weak. 
and yet I focused in and really drilled in on this weakness. And we tend to do that as professionals. We look at individuals and say, okay, the first thing I want to know is what's their greatest weakness? Where are they weak at? And the thing we need to know is what's their greatest strength? Put them in a place where they can live out of their strengths, affirm them in it, and in the places that they're weak, come behind them, retrain them, reteach them, continue to affirm them, and just know eventually they're going to get it. Eventually they're going to catch on. Some people it takes a little longer than others. It, you know, Some people it just naturally comes to them that they're able to pick up a new skill set. Others, they have to practice and practice and practice, and it takes a little more patience. And so whether it's in parenting or in our careers, we really have to look at the power of positive affirmation and really say, okay, how can I uplift the people around me? And when you do that, you're going to see some incredible results from your team because you're going to see more gratitude. You're going to see more humility. You're going to see people who are innovating, who are taking chances and who are going out. And suddenly they're exponentially getting more done than you ever could uh, in your own um, state. Sure. And, you know, I think uh, uh, John Cunningham has mentioned it, and if you guys are following him on Twitter more than once, is to be uncomfortable, you know, as a leader, to get yourself uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, it's going to be hard to grow, right? You're going to, you're pretty much going to do what you're doing because you're comfortable at doing it. But getting uncomfortable uh, is tough, you know, going and doing something or trying something different or pushing ahead when, when, well, why do I really need to push? And, I see that a lot in our industry with equipment managers and, you know, we get stuck in that mode of, well, I'm just going to do it the way I've always done it because no one's ever said anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's ever complained, so they, I must be doing something right. Instead of looking at it like I can continuously get better and better and better and hone my craft, instead I just get stuck in, this is the way we've always done it, so this is the way I'm going to do it. And and you know if you look at that as a as in a bigger picture like a hotel company you know if you look at a hotel company that just does things the way they've always done them and you hit a rough patch in the in the uh, economy what happens to those hotels they close down because there's nothing great about them there's nothing that says hey you know let's go stay at xyz hotel right there's if there's nothing that you remember from it and you know, ah, it's an okay hotel. You're, you know, you're not, you're saving your money now. You're going to choose one vacation maybe instead of three vacations. So, you know, you're going to go spend that one vacation at a place you know you're going to get great service. That they're innovative all the time. That they've got these new great things or whatever the case may be. Right? They've got robots in the lobby now. Whatever it may be. Right? So, you know, when you start looking at things in in that way, and you translate those, whether it be from a hotel to a to the golf industry, um, you know, guys that continue to progress and get better and, and learn to lead and learn to do things outside of their little box. I think those are the people that, that continue to move up in the business that continue to aspire and get to the goals that they, that they want to set or, or want to achieve. And, uh, I think those are some important things and, and being comfortable in what you're doing is great but it's not going to get you any further. And I think it's important that, uh, that we get ourselves uncomfortable. And I think that's a very good, uh, good word to use in this, in this thing. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can be comfortable or you can grow. Uh, there's an old saying that says you can be in control or you can grow, but you can't have both. Yeah. And so as leaders, we have to be 
okay with being uncomfortable and being out of control at times and allowing the ship to kind of steer itself. I mean, there are times where I've launched projects and I have in my mind exactly how I want things to go and exactly what I want the end product to look like. And I have an exact path of how I want to get there. And then we start the project and all of a sudden the team is veering left, they're going right. And they're coming up with ideas I'd never thought of and they're bringing it back and they're saying, well, what about if we did this or we could even take it over here? And before long, the project that I started with looks nothing like it was going to look in the end, but it is 10 times better because I have team members who are comfortable with coming and saying, hey, I'm willing to experiment with this. I'll put my neck on the line. It's kind of a joke in the office. Uh, they know when I come in, I, I tend to be more of the creative personality out of our group. And so we'll sit down at one of our weekly meetings and begin to say, okay, what, what kind of things do we want to plan for in the future? And I'll start, start throwing stuff out and people will laugh. Um, but I know, look, I'm going to fail 99 times. All I need is that one winning idea. If I can get that one idea out there and it can land, it can be revolutionary. And so that's really what allows us to continue to innovate as a hotel. It allows us to continue to innovate as a golf course because we keep saying, okay, all of these other ideas, let's think about them. No, they're not financially viable. They're they're not really going to fit who we are and they're not going to fit our brand. And then every so often there's one idea that people go, oh, we hadn't thought about it that way. What if we did try that? Let's give it a shot. And when you allow the person who came up with that idea to then run with it, man, they feel empowered. And now they feel like they're going to bring more ideas to the table. And the people around them are going to say, you know what? I want to bring some ideas to the table too. Yeah. So. No, I think good points. And, you know, I think one of the keys to all of this too is, is, you know, the right person doing the right job. And, you know, it kind of takes me in kind of to this next part of this, and that's predictive index. And for some of you that are listening, you've heard of this before. And if you know Jody Cunningham and John Cunningham, they talk about it all the time. I know Jody, uh, this is her business, so uh, so she certainly does it. But I got introduced to it, you know, back in 2015, and it's just amazing. I mean, if you've you know Myers Briggs and all those different personality things, it's sort of like that, right? Um, but you know. For it to be able to tell us, you know, kind of the personalities that we have and and the how those fit into a specific job, um, you know, as an example, one thing I learned from this, from from utilizing this, is, you know, we put a guy out there to cut cups and he leaves dirt around the edges. He doesn't trim the edges. Their flag sticks not straight all the time. We can't get him to fill the divots. You know, there, there's all the little things. You know the the straight straightening the the ropes as he goes around all those little you know details and you know did you know that some people aren't high detail people they just that's just not how they are you know you look at somebody's desk and it's got crap all over it you know probably not a high detail person but then you've got someone and every everything is lined up and and it's got its own place and that pen has to go exactly where it, where it's supposed to go and you know that's a high detail person and you know, imagine if you actually knew that about the individual without having to work with them for 20 years to figure it out. And I think, you know, predictive index for me, and you can talk about it on how we use it over at the hotel, but I think for me has been a game changer to identify, you know, what am I going to experience out of that employee? What, what things are they going to be really excelling in? And what things am I going to have to teach them how to do because it's not their strong suit? If they want to be an equipment manager, they may still have to do some things that they don't like to do, but how do I, since I know they hate it, is there some creative ways as a leader 
that I can get them to where I need them to be uh, to take that next step. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about how we do it over at the hotel, but I know for me and, and over the years, it's been one of those things where, you know, how have we ever done this without having this? You know, it just saves so much time and effort to know it right out of the gate rather than try to figure it out for 10, for 10 years. And then, man, no wonder this guy couldn't ever cut these cups, right? He's not a high detail guy. Yeah. It's, it's incredible what it's able to do. I mean, predictive index is, is, you know, 10 minutes or less, you're taking a quick behavioral assessment, cognitive assessment, if you will. And you're then collecting all this data about a personality. Um, And the other nice thing about it is you're collecting data, not just about this person, but every person you give this to. And so from a corporate perspective, um, from a workforce perspective, you can really begin to see, okay, where are the talents within your organization? What type of personalities really excel um, in their positions or in certain outlets or in certain departments? And so um, that data aggregation point is amazing. Um, We particularly use it for two different functions. We use it for recruiting and we use it for developing. Um, from a recruiting perspective, we, you know, if you think about how modern workplaces tend to do recruiting, it's you look at the resume, you talk to the person in a face-to-face interview, you have recruiters on your HR or people in culture staff who bring individuals in and they're supposed to be like Jedi Knights looking at an individual and able to see below the surface and really get to know by playing these psychological tricks who they are and whether they're going to be a good fit in your company. And on average, if you look at the dollar amount you spend onboarding employees, at times it's just a guess. It really is an educated guess that you're taking on an individual. And by being able to send out this assessment, you can get back a really clear, defined answer, not just on what experiences this person has had and what accomplishments they've made, And not even how good an interviewer they are, because let's face it, a lot of people, when they come in to apply for a job, they're putting their best foot forward, Mm -hmm. you know, and if they can't get it right in the interview, they're only going to get worse as an employee. But I've met some great people who in the interview are phenomenal, and then they get onto the staff and can't tell their left foot from the right. And you're like, what just happened? Because they've mastered the art of the interview. This really peels that layer back and it says, okay, aside from the resume and aside from their interviewing skills, how does their brain actually function? How is it wired? Um, So that when they get into this position, we can see where the potholes are going to be for them. But we're also going to see where this position is going to allow them to excel. They're going to spread their wings and really take off and maybe even elevate this organization to a place we've not been before uh, because they are so aligned with where we want to go um, as a team or as a department. And so if you think about it, Uh, we are right next to Walt Disney. We're literally two miles from the front gate. There are a lot of different reasons people come to Disney World. And working in the hospitality industry this close to the theme park, I think we've seen them all. People come because their baby was just born and they want Mickey to christen them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why do you bring a a three-month-old to Disney? I don't know, but people do it every day. Some people are coming to get married, you know, like Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom are about to get married over here at the castle in a couple weeks. And so that's a really exciting event. Some people are coming because there's nostalgia and they came as a child. If you think of predictive index as being a way to really look within a person and say, okay, what are your reasons for really applying for this job and really coming into this organization? Why do you see this as a great fit for yourself? That tool 
will peel back those layers and allow you to say, ah, okay, this person is really social. They love being around people. And so out at the pool, they're going to do great because they have to be a little more independent and they have to be willing to just approach someone and talk to them and establish a a connection with them and be quick to trust them and welcome them as a guest. But if I have someone who is extremely introverted and is not very welcoming and very warm, then when they apply for the pool, the first thing I want to do is ask them some questions in reference to, okay, if you're going to work outside with guests, it's going to be a really social atmosphere. Um, Is that something you're really comfortable with? And if so, how do you compensate uh, for your introversion if that's something that you're not comfortable with? What are some ways that you kind of put up opportunities or put up... um, put up reinforcements so that you can compensate for where you're weak in this area. And so for us, as we use it as a recruiting tool, it's not to say here's a profile and someone fits this profile and we only wanna hire this type of personality, but rather it helps guide our interview so that when we have a personality, we can see where the strengths and the weaknesses are and we can see is this person self-aware about their weaknesses and do they feel like they still want to do this job knowing that there are some things they're going to have to do that they're not going to like. Sure. And, you know, I, I agree. I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that is important about this is, you know, just because my guy that isn't very um, detailed doesn't cut cups well he could be the best fairway mower we have or or the best uh, person at raking bunkers or whatever the case may be right there's other tasks that he may be great at but we don't know that until we put them in the position unless we have another tool to use and I think that's the point is if I've got a team of 20 25 guys and I don't know the strengths or weaknesses of any of them I have to figure out what they are over time. And it could come across to me as a guy that just doesn't care instead of a guy that, you know, just isn't detailed. And to, as a leader looking at this, man, this guy could care less about these cups, you know, and making sure that they're, they're right. But he just can't do it. You know, he's just not, he's just not, it's the detail, he just doesn't see it. And, and so I think it's important that, you know, if you have tools like this or, you know, certainly look into tools like this, um, I think it'd be, it, it's, it'd be, it saves you years of time, uh, not only for you, but also for the employee. You know, being able to, to know, oh, man, this is exactly me. Now, what jobs does, this act, does my profile line up with? You know, imagine if everybody before they went to college had to take a PI and you could line up all the job pros and you could save yourself forty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, knowing that you know what I'm probably not going to be a good doctor because my PI doesn't line up very well with with what a doctor's would, and having to find that out later in life, you know, versus being able to see it and say, well, you know, these jobs I actually like this job, you know, and it it lines up better with how my personality is. Yeah, we're definitely looking at, as a developmental tool, how can we help our staff continue to grow and be challenged and transition from one role to another because no one wants to stay in their position for more than a couple of years. We want to continue to grow them and push them towards growth. And so 
one of the ways we can do that is kind of saying, okay, here's where your gifts and talents really align. Have you ever thought about doing this job before? Um, because we could see you in this role. We see your personality and we see that, man, you have really high formality. You like structure. You're someone who would be great at being able to apply policy. Have you ever thought about going into finance? Have you ever thought about going into um, concierge? Have you ever thought about going into a place that is a little more structured than where you are presently? You know, if you put me out on the golf course, I am that guy who is not a detail person. If I were cutting cups and I have cut cups before, they are never perfectly straight. You know, I get the bubble pretty close when we go to cut the cup and I look at cup and I'm like, yeah, it's good enough. Right. And good enough is never good for Steven Tucker. And it's never good for most golf courses. If you're cutting a cup, it needs to be exact. Same thing with with being a spray tech. There are times where you're looking around and you're like, eh, it's good enough. Not always. You don't, you don't want to be a big picture person in a detail-oriented role because what's going to happen is you're going to go home and you're going to be tired because you're constantly stretching who you are to try to be somebody that you're not naturally. Mm. Um, when I came into the learning specialist role, it was a very administratively heavy role. And as I was working under my leader at the time, it was a lot of booking rooms. It was a lot of keeping organized what dates uh, certain trainings were happening, taking role in attendance, making sure people were in compliance, following rules. And if you look at my assessment and who I am, I am the most informal person you will ever meet. Um, I look at rules and I look at structure and I just question it. And I go, why do we even have it? Do we need to have it? You shouldn't have to tell somebody what they have to do. Just let them do what they want to do. So for me, if you looked at my PI and then you looked at how I thought I needed to be in my role, they were almost inverse. And so I was going home at night exhausted, emotionally exhausted mentally because I was stretching myself into a mold that I was just, quite frankly, never going to fit. Uh, And now in a learning manager position, my role is much more big picture focused. It's much more conceptual. It's much more comprehensive. And I'm kind of a visioneer, if you will, of where we're going with training and where we're going with learning uh, and looking ahead and saying, hey, guys, this is the direction that we need to take. And when it comes to the details, I'm delegating them away. And I love my role because of that. Um, I have a great direct report now who um, is phenomenal uh, and comes in and he is one of the most detail-oriented persons, I, individuals I've ever met uh, and is on top of everything. It, he is a perfectionist uh, and while I am a perfectionist and he's a perfectionist, we're perfectionists for different reasons. He's a perfectionist because he wants the details right. He wants it to be accurate. He wants the numbers to line up and he wants this to be the best it can possibly be. I'm a perfectionist because I socially want to connect with people and I want to add value to their life. And so if you give me something to do, I want it to be perfect because I want you to value our relationship. And so those two very opposite drives, while we have perfectionism um, in congruity, while we have perfectionism, while we share that trait, it is something that we have for very, very different reasons. And knowing that I can coach him better, I'm a very large risk taker. I love taking risk. I, you can't win if you don't buy a lotto ticket. Um, if you don't get some chips and go to the table and sit down, you can't win the Texas uh, the poker Texas Hold'em tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to take risks. That is not great for someone who's leading a department because I could very quickly get us into a hole. I could take some risks financially. I could take some risks uh, ethically. I could take some risks um, within our department or within our profession that could lead to disaster 
within the hotel. And my direct report looks at me and he is the most risk adverse person that you've probably met. He looks at risk as uh, not an asset, but as a liability. And so he wants to mitigate this risk. And so between he and I, while it can be a point of contention at times, he really reels me back in. And at times when he wants to be really safe, I push him to grow a little bit. And so uh, it makes for a great balance. And just from our dynamic alone, man, it has been huge for us as a team uh, because the two of us balance each other so well that we are far more efficient and far more effective than any learning partnership I think we've had at this hotel or resort since we've opened. That's great. That is great. And I see it. You know, you can definitely tell it, you know, from our side, you know, being able to see the differences and the changes um, happening. All right. So last question as we close on our uh, one hour here. Um, If you were going to draw a roadmap for a new leader, what would it look like? Now, I know you struggle with this because, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge. You know, how do you how do you basically tell someone or show someone how to be a leader? Um, But I think it's important for people to understand you know, not only what a leader is, because I think there's some, well, I'm, I'm at the head of the position here, so I'm the leader, isn't necessarily a leader. And I think it's important that people know what a leader is, but also, you know, what are those steps that I got to take to be one? Um, so that maybe, you know, when you listen to some of these, it, 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 it kind of rings a bell and says, you know, I'm not very good at that. You know, I'm not very good in that, in that part of, of leadership and and maybe that's something that I need to need to spend more time on. So there's a few essentials I think that every leader needs to have. One, the first thing you need to look for is humility, right? Um, the people who often think they're going to be the best leaders turn out to be the worst. And the, the individuals who are more insecure and always wonder, I don't know that I could do that job. I don't know that I'm ready for it. The people who tend to be more hesitant if you spend time with them and give them the opportunity, they nine times out of 10 turn out to be a far better leader than anyone expected. But it's because they have a level of self-awareness and they're able to say, hey, I don't know that I have all the tools necessary. I would much rather have someone walking in who says, I feel unprepared and I don't know that I'm going to be able to do this. And they're moldable than have someone walk in who's cocky and says, don't worry, I've got this. I'm going to make sure everything falls into place. Uh, and, I, you know, just give me the keys and I'll drive the bus from here that's never a good sign. And so that level of humility, if you're starting with that, I think that's kind of essential. The other thing I would say is if you're going to be a new leader, if you're stepping into that position, establish early what your mission and vision is going to be. Where do you want to take this team? The difference between a a leader and a manager is a manager is just going to maintain, right? And managers have their places. Managers are great people. And there are certain places that we want to just keep the status quo. We don't want to rock the boat. Um, when it comes to compliance, when it comes to some of our um, legal policies, when it comes to finance. We don't really want to rock the boat with finance every other week by trying new apps and losing people's paychecks and experimenting with tax law. We really want that to be a steady and consistent space. But for departments that want to innovate and departments that want to grow, if you're stepping into that leadership position, you need to have a mission and you really need to say, okay, this is where we're going to go as a team. And here are some of the ways we're going to get there. Here are the things we're going to elevate and say these are the most important things so that we can cross that finish line, whatever the timeline may look look like in the future. So you have these four, five, six values that really bind you together as a team. 
and over time as little things start to you know come at this team and begin to divide them they can always come back to here are the three things we believe here are the four truths that we want to hold to that are pushing us towards that mission third thing i would say is learn the art of asking the right questions questions are so so powerful and it is instrumental in teaching any adult anything I can talk to you all day long on this podcast, and we're doing it now. This is not the most effective mode of learning something. The most effective mode of learning something is being asked a great question and thinking through that answer yourself. And so as a leader, if you can learn to ask an appropriate question and allow people to come to a conclusion on their own, you're going to do them far more good than just telling them what the answer is. Obsess over hiring. Um, that is a huge one. You've got to be plugged into hiring the right people, developing the right people, empowering the right people, always looking at that bus, um, that team that you have, and making sure people are in the right seats and in the right place. Uh, if someone is not in the right seat, find the right seat for them. And if there is no seat for them, get them off the bus because it's going to do far more damage than good dragging them along because they're not going to want to be there. You're not going to know how to handle them and become frustrated. And the team is going to look at you and be like, what are we doing with this person? You know, they don't seem to be catching on. We can't do anything with them. When I know I've made a good choice when I turn around to someone and they've been terminated and the team looks at me and goes, oh my gosh, finally. Like we are so relieved that that person is gone. They were gossiping. They always had a bad attitude. They didn't really want to be here. And now we can get back to the things that we really want to be doing. Um, you want to be prepared to fail. As we talked about before, you want to focus on communication skills. The biggest um, asset that you can have as a new leader is working on and building your communication skills. It's something that AI will never be able to replace. It's something that in the future is going to be extremely valuable, and it's something in the present that organizations say we need more of. I can tell you that working at the resort, most of my managers, they are great people. They know their numbers. They know their data, and a lot of them are really nervous about communicating. And so for us, we're looking at ways of how can we offer public speaking courses? How can we begin to develop their speaking skills? How can we help them improve? Because if we can effectively communicate with our teams, both in a pre-shift format or in a, hey, here's where we're going, guys, format, or even in just a giving back, giving feedback to each other uh, format, feedback is extremely important. And the better you can deliver feedback, the better you can communicate that to your team, the more quickly they're going to adapt and they're going to grow and they're going to develop. Um, when it comes to feedback, the, the two things that we look at, and uh, this comes from a phenomenal um, book called Radical Candor, uh, we look at two things. One, have you shown your team that you care deeply about them? Whoever you're going to give feedback to, you have to be invested in their life and not just at a visceral level of I make your schedule and I sign your paychecks, but you have to be invested in what's going on in their personal life and what's going on with them here at this team. They have to know that you care about them and that you would be willing um, to take responsibility in order to help them out of a situation, right? Much like Rusty did for me when I crashed that sprayer, mm -hmm. I knew he was personally invested in me at that point because he didn't have to do that. And we also have to be really, really skilled at challenging directly, not beating around the bush, not hemming and hawing, not going before the whole team and saying, okay guys, remember the policy is you need to be to work on time 
And so make sure that you're not five minutes late, but it's going to that person and saying, hey, listen, I love you. Uh, we do a, you do a phenomenal job here at the hotel in this department, uh, and you have a whole lot of promise, but you've got to make sure you show up on, on time to work. Like, I need you here. The team needs you here, and this needs to happen. And I'm talking to you about it now, I, and I don't expect to have to talk to you about it again. If something's going on, let me know. Uh, but I just want to make it really clear, like, we need you to be punctual because we can't get started until you're present. And being able to give that feedback, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, that's great. If you're not personally invested in me and you come and say, hey, I really need you to show up on time and you walk away, then it's what I would, it's what I would look at you and I would say, man, that, that was kind of rude. It was kind of mm-hmm. harsh. Um, I would turn and I would say that is not kind feedback that you're giving to me. Rather, it's just obstinate. And you're just giving me this because you're my boss and you've got to tell me. If you're someone who cares a whole lot about me, and you come up to me and you go, listen, it's really important that people are on time. Don't you hate it when people are late? Yeah, it really sucks. You know, We want to make sure that people are on time. Um, yeah, maybe we should put a policy in place. And then you walk away. We haven't really solved anything. You didn't even tell me that I was late. Mm-hmm. We just talked about the idea. But some leaders are like, well, I talked to him about being late. I went to him and I, I told him this. And it's like, no, that wasn't direct. We need to be direct. Mm-hmm. Tell people that we're upset with the action, not that we're upset with who they are right? I'm not mad at you because you're late. I'm mad at the fact that you're late. And so let's make sure that we get that corrected. When we change the action, they can course correct their behavior, right? And it's not a criticism of who they are. It's a criticism of the action they took. That was just a bad choice. People make bad choices. Last but not least, I would say make sure that you work for your team. The two biggest questions you can ask to your team is what can I do and how can I help? If you're able to walk in and ask that question every day to the people who work for you, they are going to be indebted to you. They are going to love being on your team because you are coming at them and saying, you know what, I'm not going to go in the office and just work on administrative stuff and let you all handle the menial work, but you're going to be in the trenches with them and you're going to be saying, how can I support you as a leader? So what can I do and how can I help? I think if you really begin to do those things, you're going to work your way out of your job. And when you work your way out of your job and other people are now doing what you used to do as a leader, it frees you up to go on to do bigger and better things. And that's always what we want our leaders to be pursuing. Give away your responsibilities and make it into something that um, is transferable to the people who are working with you so that you can move on to do something great. I think also one of the big things to add on to that is, um, is being willing to make mistakes. Because, you know, as I've told my guys, I learn more from making mistakes than I do from getting it right. And, you know, the more things I get right, I think it's great, but I didn't learn anything from it. And, you know, you got to be willing to make mistakes so that you can have more opportunities to learn. You know, obviously, as you become a leader, you learn more and more and more about what the job is. Uh, You don't want to make tons of mistakes, but at the same time, if you're not willing to make them, then uh, you could you could have a hard time uh, growing as a leader as well. Well, Nick, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I certainly enjoy the talk and discussing leadership. And you know, I could I'm sure we could talk about this stuff for another hour. Um, but uh, certainly appreciate it. I think you know the big thing for me in in this part of it is there's not a whole lot. Of, you know, there, there's more and more being taught over the last couple of years on leadership. But you know, it's it's something that got avoided quite a while you know for quite a while now and and uh you know the biggest thing about teaching leadership is understanding how it relates to everything and you know in my mind being a good leader 
transforms a team, transforms a product. It's a chain reaction. You know, if I've got a poor leader, I've also got a generally a team that doesn't perform, and then I've got a product that doesn't meet the expectation of the people playing it. And so I think if you look at the leadership and the leadership's great, you generally have a team that's great. You generally have a product that's great. And so um, by putting all those pieces together, my hope is from this podcast that guys take a little bit different approach, a little bit different look at themselves and, and uh, read some of the books that we've talked about. Uh, um, so thanks again, Nick. I certainly appreciate you uh, coming on today and, and uh, look forward to working with you for many years to come. Yeah, it was an absolute blast. Everything rises and falls on leadership. (laughs) All right, man. You have a good one. All right, you too.